gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about the person and the work of Christ is something that not only saves us, it continually saves us and sanctifies us and it infiltrates our life. When we think of battles and warfare, human history has been defined by warfare. And warfare has changed the course of human history. The Battle of Megiddo in 1457 BC where Tutmose III came up the plains of Sharon and went through one of the passes there through the Carmelite range and took Megiddo by surprise where a coalition of Canaanite kings had gathered in defense. Just a week and a half ago, myself and 49 of you were there in Israel standing at Megiddo seeing the ancient fortress, the tell, the layers of civilization, a place where a decisive battle was fought, where Egypt won influence over that region really for the next few centuries. And it changed the course of history for that area and made Egypt one of the dominant powers through to the late Bronze Age. The Battle of Marathon in 490 BC where the Greeks checked Persian expansion the Greeks marching across into Europe and yet the Greeks stopped them and it held fast a Greek city-state that became a world power that culminated in Alexander the Great that swept across Asia and made Greek the lingua franca of the ancient world so that we even have the Bible that's written in Greek, the New Testament, as a result of these battles and the dominance of the Greeks for that period of time. In 1187 AD, the Battle of Hattin, where the crusader army marched across the lower Galilee and they met Salahadin at the horns of Hatin, these two little mountains that are just north of, sorry, just east of where, uh, north, south, east, west, west of Capernaum, where Jesus did a lot of his ministry. But it was at that place where Salahadin checked the crusader advance and crusader dominance ended at that period of time. And for the next century, Salahadin and his armies established hegemony over the Middle East. Battles change the course of history. Warfare is a part of the human experience. And as battles and warfare are a part of the human experience, so warfare is part of the Christian experience. And how we fight it has significant implications on our own lives, but on history itself. This is why the Apostle Paul in verse 18 to 20 of 1 Timothy, he says this, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this. Some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Wage the good warfare, Timothy. But what is this warfare? And who is the enemy? How do we fight this battle? These are key questions as we talk about the Christian experience and the Christian warfare. The big idea this morning for this passage is that verse 18. The big idea, wage the good warfare. It's an instruction it's a charge to Timothy, but it's a charge to the wider church that we are to wage the good warfare. 
I want to talk briefly four points this morning, and I'm going to reiterate these, so if you don't get them all right now, that's fine. But number one, this is a warfare. It's a battle that must be fought. Number two, it is a noble warfare. Number three, the weapons of our warfare are powerful. And number four, don't let go of the helm of the ship of your life. Four lessons that we can learn as a result of this short passage. But let's remember where we're at. We're in, let's do a little bit of a context review. We're in the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. We've been going through 1st Timothy. And the Apostle Paul is concerned that the church knows how to act, to live out the living Christ, to be a people that live out the living Christ. In 1st Timothy 3.15, he says, I want you to know how you ought to behave in the household of the living God the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And in verse one and two, we see that Paul was a man whose lips dripped a living faith and that he wants Timothy and the church to be a people that are undistracted from the living Christ because it's so easy. It is so easy to get distracted from Christ and be drawn aside by lesser things. And so the gospel becomes obscured. We are to be a people who feel the weight of the law Verse 8 to 11, because the law used rightly showcases us our need for a Savior and crushes us, prepares our hearts for, how can I keep the law? I need a Savior. Thanks be to God who sent his son Jesus Christ so that we might be a people in verse 12 to 17 that feel the weight of grace found only in Christ. And the Apostle Paul is kind of exhibit A of a great example of what grace is and what it looks like. Timothy is in Ephesus. A lot takes place in Ephesus. Matter of fact, the book of 1 and 2 Timothy really could be Ephesians 2.0. The book of the Ephesians, wrote to the church at Ephesus, probably around 60 AD, during the imprisonment of Paul. And then after his first imprisonment, he then writes the pastoral epistles in 2 Timothy during his second imprisonment. He's imprisoned twice in Rome. First time, Ephesians, in between, 1 Timothy and Titus, second imprisonment, and his death, 2 Timothy. But all of this writing is primarily oriented around Ephesus and the region of the Ephesians. Timothy is here doing ministry during 1 Timothy. And he's experiencing tremendous opposition. And Paul wants to fortify Timothy, to encourage him to stay in the fight, to stay in the battle. And he says, I entrust to you, Timothy, verse 18, my child. It's a great affection that Paul has for Timothy. In accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. We don't know exactly the event that he's referring to, but at some point there was a laying on of hands, a commissioning because Timothy had been recognized as a young man of godliness and gifting and Holy Spirit empowerment. He says, remember, Timothy, we all agreed that you have been charged by God for this task and let no one tell you otherwise. Stay in the fight. The Apostle Paul wants to remind Timothy, but also others, that Timothy is God's man for the job. Even in 2 Timothy, when, when, when uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about the lineage of Timothy and he talks about his mother and his grandmother, great lineage through the maternal impact of his life. But these verses were not given for Mother's Day. The Jewish line is traced through the mother. 
And the Apostle Paul wants to tell everybody, not only is he qualified, but those of you Jews who think that Timothy shouldn't be speaking on matters of the law, he is also a Jew qualified through the maternal lineage. Timothy is facing great opposition, probably great discouragement. That's why there's so much affection here. The Apostle Paul is trying to encourage him to stay in the fight. Timothy was special to Paul. In Philippians 2, verse 19 to 22, Paul writing about Timothy says, I hope in the Lord Jesus, he's writing to the Philippians, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me with the gospel. Timothy has this great pastoral affection and heart. He loves people and he's genuinely concerned about people, but he's getting burned out. He's burned out with the opposition and the battle and Paul says, Timothy, stay in the fight. Hold in there. I know it's hard, but it's a fight that must be fought. Wage the good warfare. Now, what can we learn from Paul and Timothy about the Christian's warfare? Number one, it is a battle that must be fought. It is a battle that must be fought. The word here for wage and the word warfare in the Greek has a little bit of a poetic rhyme because they're both of the same word. Wage, strateue, and then warfare, stratean. Strateue, kalen, stratean. It rings off in the Greek. Wage, the good, warfare. And the good doesn't mean wage good, like you must do a good job. Rather, the good modifies warfare. It's a good warfare, a noble warfare, an honorable warfare. Wage this noble battle. The Christian life is warfare. It is warfare as we engage in the pursuit of godliness and holiness. It is warfare just to read the Bible. It is warfare to be holy. It is warfare to love our spouses as Christ has loved the church and as Christ submitted himself to this Father. It is warfare to fight for unity in the church. It is warfare not only as we fight for godliness, it's warfare as we push away those things that are ungodly. Three spheres of battle primarily, one in our flesh. The indwelling sin of our hearts and life, the lusts that are in our minds and our hearts, and we all have them. Same lusts, different expressions of the lusts. Same pride, different expressions of pride. Flesh, it's a battleground. The world system around us is a battleground. We're reminded daily as we look at the news that the world system stands against everything that God is. Do you agree with that? Yeah, it is. The world system is a battleground. There's also a third domain, and that is the satanic and the demonic spiritual realm. The flesh is our own sin and sinful desires. And let's be honest, we tend to minimize this battleground. Well, I'm not that bad. I know I struggle, but I'm not that bad. We minimize it. 
There's the world system, the structured order of evil. And we tend to overemphasize this one because the battle is always out there. The problem is always someone else, not me, but out there. And if we can get that order right and we can take care of the world through whatever means necessary, if we can take care of that battleground, everything will be fine. But then there's a third spiritual realm. And this is the one that we tend to ignore altogether. The demonic, the satanic warfare. Our prime enemy. Now who is our enemy? Satan. He is powerful. He is superhuman. He is hyper intelligent. And he is personal. He's not some abstract force. He is personal. But you must also understand this. He is not divine. He is not a god. He is a created fallen being and he's infinitely less in power than God or any member of the Trinity. As I tell my children, God can take his big thumb at any time to Satan and just go, done. You like that theological term? There's an infinite gap in power between God and Satan. And this flies in the face of Mormonism, or even some strands of evangelicalism where we dabble in what is called dualism, where you have a good God, the God of the Bible, and the bad God, Satan, and they're at equal odds. They're at war with one another, and they are equal terms and party. The Bible does not teach that. Satan is a created being under an omnipotent God, and there is no contest of power. Satan has a temporary freedom that will one day be expunged. That is why we as the people of God say, even so, come Lord Jesus, come. So that when he marks through that eastern gate and splits the Mount of Olives in two, Satan is taken and locked away forever. We look forward to that day. But in the meantime, he wages a fierce battle. It is on this third area that I want to talk about the warfare primarily because the Apostle Paul sees this third area, the spiritual war, as the most significant of the three. It is not that it gives us an excuse for, for, for being okay with sin in our life. No, by no means. But even as Paul is writing in Ephesians and he lays out who we are in Christ and then he talks about expunging the sin from our flesh through obedient living. But then in Ephesians chapter 6 he says, finally brothers, here's the last word I want to remind you. The backdrop to all of these things, the true warfare, the true battle that we don't see and yet is the most real warfare. Ephesians 6.12 we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. What we see on the news or in society is not the primary battlefield. The primary battlefield is against rulers, authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, the Apostle Paul and Timothy are not ignorant of this battle because we know in Ephesus, this battle raged. In Acts chapter 19, we get a little bit of a glimpse of this. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want, but Acts 19, verse 11 to 17. 
We're in Ephesus. The gospel is moving powerfully. This is what the Bible says. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away by, to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. They thought there was a magical formula, an incantation by just utilizing the name of Christ as they could repel the evil spirits. And so they go to one evil spirit. They say, I adjure you by the name of Jesus of Paul. Not of us, of Paul. And here's what the evil spirit says. Jesus I know... And Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. There are glimpses of this warfare behind the scenes. And we see an enemy that is fierce and intense. An enemy that is organized. That even has hierarchies of structure. As Christian people, we are set in a tremendous conflict. Wrestling, standing against, withstanding an enemy that is attacking. And yet sometimes I think that we forget this battle. Now there is a resource here. I just picked this up. It's the Christian warfare by the good doctor. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's one of those authors. And part of my job, I believe, as your pastor is to help give you names and resources. And this is one of those guys that just read anything he writes and you'll be blessed. Faithful servant of God that served in Westminster Chapel in London, followed uh, G. Campbell Morgan in the pulpit. And he wrote this book. It's 330 pages. So if you're glutton for punishment on three verses and you think my sermons are long. It's 300 pages on simply the exposition of uh, chapter 6, verse 10 to 13 of Ephesians, talking about the Christian's warfare. He says this, we as a church need to be careful of just teaching the things that statesmen and politicians can say. The church is different. We know the remedy, and the remedy is Christ. These are but symptoms of the warfare, but the real warfare is in the spiritual realm whereby we must as a people of God stand and stand firm on Christ. As a Christian people, we are set in this tremendous conflict, wrestling, standing against, withstanding an enemy that is attacking. And even though you get a temporary victory, you do not say, well, it's all over. I can take my ease now and go away on a holiday. Be careful. Hell takes no holidays. The idea is that this is a relentless war, that there is no discharge in this war. As long as we are engaged in life and in godliness, there will be a fight, a struggle, and a conflict. Are we aware of the war and the battle? 
Do we realize where the battlefield is that Ephesians 6, 12 says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And yet we primarily wrestle in flesh and blood. That, that, that's the tools that we use. Activism, voting, legislation, disciplines and boundaries, internet protections, parental filters, programs to win the lost or to do ministry or community development. Now hear me out. All of these things are good and right in their proper place. But tell me, what makes you different than any good moral person who would stand for the exact same things? What makes the church different? We may engage in many of the same activities, but we do so recognizing that that is not the primary battlefield. We wage a war on our knees in the name of Christ and in the power of Christ through his word in obedient, godly living. And that is the greatest battlefield that exists. But you see, the, war, the world will laugh at us for that because they don't believe in God and they don't believe in the spiritual realm. So they laugh at us that we would go through these things like reading your Bible. Why, why would you read your Bible? Why would you read an old book? There's work to be done. But here's the problem. Many Christians say the exact same thing. We don't have time for prayer or for reading the Bible. I need to get out there and be doing. There is a place for doing. But how can we have the power of God as a church if we are not in his word, in communion with him, waging war on the devil's terms with the power of God that makes him flee? Is it possible that we see so little victory in our own lives because we're fighting the wrong battlefield? And Satan wants you to be blind to this battle. When Paul recounting his testimony in Acts chapter 26, he says that the gospel, verse 18, is to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. This warfare is a battle that must be fought and daily. That battle can manifest itself in just trying to get to church. That battle can manifest itself in just trying to love your spouse. That battle can manifest yourself in just all of the different ways that you are distracted from reading God's word. Don't read your Bible on your phone or on your iPad if you can't go for more than two or three minutes before checking the news or checking Instagram. If you can do it, great. I read my Bible on my iPad all the time. But I have programs, I keep off of that because I recognize it's so easily for me to be distracted. There's a warfare raging over your heart, soul, and mind, over your family, over your children, but we must fight it. I urge you to fight it. This is not, when we're reading through the Bible as a church, this is not just a good thing to do. It is part of the warfare of the body to read God's word and to make sure that we are fighting with the word of God and not in our own strength. Because, number two, it is a noble warfare. Paul says, wage the good warfare. And that good qualifies. This isn't some sort of unjust war or misplaced war or some misprioritized war. This is an excellent, blameless, honorable warfare. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones again says, we are given the privilege of following in our master's footsteps. It is a mighty conflict. It is. But are you ready for the battle? Are you alert? Are you on your feet? Rise up. Shake them off. Stand on your feet. Be a man. Realize that you are a member of this mighty regiment of God, fighting the battle of the Lord and destined to enjoy the glorious fruits of victory throughout the countless ages of eternity. Have you heard the trumpet call? Wage the good warfare because it is a worthy fight, a glorious one of honor. This is a battle that must be fought, and it is a noble warfare. And number three, the weapons of our warfare are powerful. Timothy, wage the good warfare. Verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. What is the sword you're to be holding as you wage this good warfare? Number two things. Number one, holding faith. What we know to be true, what we believe Recognizing that our God is greater than the enemy. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says that we wrestle against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers. At the beginning of Ephesians, he begins with a similar formula. But listen to this, Ephesians 1, 20 to 23. He raised from the dead, seated at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. He's put all things under his feet and given him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Who is this? This is Jesus Ephesians 6 tells us that we war against an organized cohort and legions of demons. And he mentions four strata of organization. He says in Ephesians 6 that we wrestle against those who are rulers, almost like the top tier demonic, authorities, those who govern, cosmic powers who affect the will of the demonic, and over this present darkness who exact moral and truth blindness over the world. Now we may say, my goodness, that's a powerful enemy. And it is. But before Paul mentions Ephesians 6, in Ephesians 1 he says, do not forget. Jesus is far above any of them. All dominions, all authority. His name is the highest. All things are under his feet. And if you are in Christ, you stand in that authority. Hold on to who he is and what we believe. And this isn't just simply acknowledging a truth, but holding on involves a personal appropriating of this faith in Christ so that we walk and say, I believe this is to be true, so I'm going to act on it. Noah and Hannah just standing up here and saying, we're going to go to the Asia Pacific Rim. You know what they're doing? They're saying, I believe Jesus is alive. I believe Jesus is sovereign and in control. I believe he's going to give the victory. And so I believe that. I'm going to take that on myself. And I'm actually going to walk 
to an airplane, get on an airplane with my family, cross 10,000 miles of ocean and land masses, land in a place where people don't want them to be there, experience hardship, disease, even heartache and challenge personally, all on the belief that Jesus Christ is alive and he's going to bring the victory. It's a faith that acts. It's a faith that moves. Hold on to this faith and a good conscience, a godly life, obedient living, communion with God, a conscience that is at peace with God because you know you're living in concert with his will. You see, doctrinal purity must be accompanied by purity of life. There is an inseparable link between truth and morality, between right belief and right behavior. And it's interesting, people often teach wrong doctrine to accommodate their sin. Do you know that? People often teach wrong doctrine in order to accommodate their sin. I don't believe in divorce. I want a divorce. I think it's okay now to get a divorce. I believe that God is okay with my sexual promiscuity or my gender identity transition. And I believe that I can find a verse in the Bible that can maybe justify that. You know what? Cheating on my taxes isn't that big of a deal. I mean, it's a corrupt government anyway. They owe me. So if I cheat and make a couple of extra dollars, hey, I deserve it. It doesn't matter what they did or are doing. You're still stealing. We are called to be a holy people. Now, notice this. We fight the warfare by what we know to be true and acting out on it and holy, godly living. The formula for spiritual warfare is knowing and living Christ and being obedient to his commands. There is nothing mysterious about that, is there? That's the formula for waging the warfare well. A good conscience. You know what a conscience is? It's the thing we can't see. We maybe see the effects of it, but the conscience is the hidden part of ourselves. God wants us to be pure all the way to the very hidden part of who we are. The person that we are when no one is looking. The eminent Puritan John Owen said, what a man is in his private life is what he is and nothing more. What a man or woman is in their private life is what they are and nothing more. You may put on a good show of warfare. You may put on a good show of flags, but who, what do you watch when no one's looking? Because no one can read your thoughts, what are you thinking? Is this a warfare that we are fighting here, here, and out here? Or have we conceded the spiritual realm because no one can really see it? but it will come out at some point. The weapons of our warfare are powerful. Do you know that godliness in the name of Christ are terrifying weapons of warfare? It is not the biggest church, the church with the most money or the most talent. It is the godly church that stands upon Christ and the word of God that will make hell quake in its boots. Help us to be that godly church. 
hold on to these weapons and don't let go of the helm. Don't let go of the helm, that, that, that wheel that guides the ship. Because by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. If there's a ship in the storm, you have to stand at the wheel and you have to fight it. The wind and the waves pull you from direction to direction. And all you have to do in the storm to shipwreck your boat is to let go. The wind and the waves will carry you to the rocks and destroy your ship. Hymenaeus and Alexander, two examples, men, who by rejecting this, and this word rejecting, used throughout the New Testament, interestingly, almost always refers to and references the people rejecting God in the wilderness under Moses. Like the people of Israel rejected God in the wilderness under Moses. Said, we don't want that God, we want our own way. Hymenaeus and Alexander and many others likewise. I'm gonna let go of the wheel. I'm tired of fighting the battle. I don't want this, it's too high of a cost. And by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Two men whom the Apostle Paul later says, Hymenaeus, his talk spreads like gangrene in 2 Timothy 2.17. An infection that destroys and kills. And for the sake of the church, he hands them over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Here's where we see church discipline in action. Protecting the church from those who would destroy it and divide it. And he hands them over. Now, this is, this, is not, this is not Paul resorting to a nuclear option and repaying evil for evil's sake, saying, fine, I give you to Satan. No, you've demonstrated you do not belong to us. So I'm handing you back over to the kingdom that you already belong to. And my hope and prayer is that under that domination, you will be brought to your senses and realize you need a savior. That they might learn that they need a savior. The warfare is from without, the warfare is within, but this is a spiritual war that we must wage. It's a good warfare. Brother and sister, we serve a savior who's with us in the battle, who draws near to us in the battle. Let us be faithful to him as he is faithful to us. May we wage the good warfare and don't let go of the helm. Let other people come in and hold it with you. Let us be a church that holds fast in faith and also with a good conscience down to the very core of who we are. For the weapons of our warfare are mighty through Christ. As the Holy Spirit lives within us and empowers us to be a church that will go from here to across the street to the other side of the world. Heavenly Father, we pray these words, this truth, this battle, that you'll be honored through our frailty, glorified in our weakness, and may we boast in none other than Christ. The warfare rages. As we do good things in our culture and society, and there is a warfare and battlefield, may we not be blind to the real war for our children, for our marriages. We have a determined and fierce enemy seeking to destroy and divide. Help us to abide and rest in your presence knowing, knowing 
That in you there is the victory. In you there is nothing to fear. In you there is power. This is a noble warfare. And may we fight it nobly until you and your goodness return in glory. We pray all these things in the power of the holy name of Christ. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.